Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah. It's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five. Four. We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. That was a bit echoey, wasn't it? I, I, I got to pull back from the microphone, I think. But hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Um, well, thank you. Thanks for asking, Peter. You've got a better <laughs> microphone than me. I've got to talk to John about this. This is a much better microphone. Well, I have to start, pull right back. But anyway, go well, on. Well, I guess it's a good uh, talk about the microphone. I was trying to think how to give a segue and thinking about the Victorian election and some of the issues that are sort of uh, coming yeah. to mind because uh, obviously the result of the Victorian election mm-hmm. is sort of, you know, roll on to next May, whenever it is, change of government, what that means. Um, we've heard a lot about dividend imputation, but there are lots of other policy uh, positions that the ALP has that could mm. affect both shares and how you're investing. And uh, I think we should uh, check that up, up from an accounting point of view, Peter, just yep. to find out what that means. Yep. And we've got a good mate, David Giles. David um, works for a company called MoneyWise, who's a, a business partner of us as well. And and David, you know, often appeared on our radio program on Talking Lifestyle and became very, very popular with, with listeners. So we've got him on the program. We'll be asking questions about that. And he defies your accounting joke. Is That's that right. right? Exactly. <laughs> Maybe you should just give the accounting yeah. joke on yeah. here, Peter. Well, well, we call them auditors as well. <laughs> Look, I, I won't pick on the accountants right now, Paul, but we'll finish off the show with it. All right, we'll keep our, our listeners waiting for it. All right, so, um, and then we're followed up by John Cusick, who is the, mm. the CEO of a very good performing company in Webjet. Yeah, uh, been a great success story on the ASX and a company that's really uh, gone from strength to strength, but but probably more so outside Australia now than inside, I yeah, think. Yeah, exactly. I always thought that their biggest problem was the fact that Airlines were cannibalizing their one time supplies like the web jets, the flight centers, and whatever. But these guys have just started you know, swallowing up businesses around the world, and uh, their share price and the consistent performance shows that they've been actually selecting very, very, very well. John Guzik will be on the program just after we talk to David Jones. As I understand it, they almost reinvented themselves, becoming effectively a supplier to other businesses, the business yeah. business. Business these days more than business to consumers. Yeah, so. exactly. B two B. It's a really good B two B strategy, and they've recently acquired something called Destinations of the World recently. And so we'll talk to John about that and the future, because as I say, the share price has has actually underpinned some pretty good uh, business decisions by John and his team. Okay, let's uh, now introduce David Giles from Moneywise. David, thanks for joining us. Great to be back, Pete. All right, mate. So look, we we going to rip straight into it. You know, you know, Paul. See, because we talked to you before the program started. So you want to say hello, Paul? Hello. Don't be a civilized team here. All right. So first up, I think a lot of people have noticed uh, pretty pretty noticeably that uh, the Labor Party romped in in Victoria on the weekend, and it probably implies that Bill Shorten will probably romp in in May. And Bill's bringing I bring a few controversial policies with him. As an accountant, can you just walk, walk us through some of the ones that you think all investors or or other people need to be aware of? Yes, well, certainly. Well, the two main ones that I get most asked about and discuss most of my clients at the moment are the proposed changes uh, uh, to 
some of the franking credit offsets um, and that you'll get where the refundable nature of those franking credits will be removed. And then also in the other area is particularly through negative gearing. Uh, they're one that's uh, going to affect a lot of people, particularly with um, down in the south, with property, um, where you will no longer be able to claim those negative losses or those tax losses uh, going forward in your tax return, if it's a new, if it's unless it's a newly purchased property. So people who've got existing properties, they're safe. But anybody buying a new, another property in the next 12 or 24 months, if the legislation comes through, they may not be able to make those pre- uh, claims as before. What's the starting date? Uh, starting date, no set starting date as yet. I believe the indication will be on, depending on when the election is. They're talking about maybe a 1 July next year starting date, but uh, I would suspect if the election's not held until the absolute last possible moment, it may not have enough time to get up in before then, so they may push it back to the following. So do you think a lot of people will start... That one's a bit of a wait and see. So do you think a lot of people will run out and maybe buy a property thinking, well... I'll hold it forever and just get the negative gearing benefits. And, uh, uh, yeah, I guess. Well, that's certainly a consideration that some of my clients have, have spoken to me about recently is saying, well, especially in light of uh, recent elections, uh, as just on the weekend, you'd say, well, maybe it is worth considering if you've got the cash there to at least get some money in from, from, from the bank um, to get that loan, then there might be a time to opportunity to, to lock in an existing property in a good location uh, to still get those negative gearing benefits because they have made a commitment that those uh, negative gearing will be grandfathered in. So if you own a property at whenever the changeover date happens, those existing arrangements will be allowed to continue. It will only apply to new purchases from that date changer afterwards. And it certainly was an idea, Peter, that occurred to me, and that's why I haven't been quite as bearish as the property market, <laughs> thinking, well, maybe, uh, maybe people might, but I think it might also have some impact in other markets. I think it's... Uh, Worthwhile, Dave, just sort of reflecting on this. It's not just property, is it? This is a this is a change about negative gearing across all the asset classes. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so, so there's a variety of areas that negative gearing traditionally would be used by many investors. So that's through shares. So if you've got like a margin loan, that type of investment, or if you've got a negative a loan to purchase a business to a tax deduction there. So the negative gearing landscape could dramatically change with a change of this policy. I believe they are still refining a few points along there, so it'll be interesting to see as we get closer to a potential election as to exactly what's ruled in and ruled out of these changes. But, yes, yeah, so it's not just the classic negative gearing on a property. is a whole range of other investments that could be potentially picked up. And, David, is it just going to be that they're going to disallow interest deductions or is it it's not specifically defined as negative gearing maybe you could just explain what the change yeah. what we expect the change to be so yeah negative gearing isn't just correct it's not just interest deductions it's all forms of deductions so you've got things like the biggest one being depreciation that's in most people's properties right after interest that's their second biggest deduction they would typically have so that's the cost and the reduction of the value of your fixtures and fittings and your walls and floors as they reduce over time. That's normally your second biggest deduction there. So for a lot of people, not having that will then generally put them into a negative situation, even if they might be a break-even on a cash. So that's a very very common structure and strategy that people look into getting a property where they might be cash neutral, but then negative geared with a bit of depreciation. Uh, So having that knocked out, that's a big one. So so, so that means, are you saying they will knock out the depreciation? It is actually, you'll be able to claim interest up to... You just won't be able to effectively well, claim a negative deduction. It creates a loss. So you'll be able to just break even, so right. basically. So whatever the total sum of your deductions are, um, that will 
that will only be allowed to be deductible against the maximum amount of, to your total amount of okay. income generated. So potentially interest will still be it's deductible, but only up to the amount that allows you to sort of yes. have, have zero net income or loss on the property. And right? we should explain to normal yeah, people, that's, David, that's just before we go for normal people. The appeal of negative gearing is that if you're being taxed really high in your, say, your salary, and you think, okay, well, why, why don't I, I just pick up this property and maybe hold it for 10 years, and along the way I'll lose, say, $7,000 a year, and I can take that $7,000 loss and take it off my, my gross income, um, and that brings my gross income, my net income down, and then I get taxed on a lower amount, and that's the refund, isn't it? That's correct. And, and it's that refund that can assist in keeping that property afloat, particularly when your model is to be a cash negative. So it's mm. one thing being an accounting negative due to depreciation, but being a cash negative, so where the actual physical outlay outgoings is greater than the income, that cash makeup can sometimes mean the make or break between holding a property or not. Mm. So it's likely after all this happens, investors will only go after new properties. But one of the bigger that the big appeals of a, a new property was the depreciation is always bigger, isn't it? Because if you buy a very, very, very old property, there's no depreciation that you can claim apart from maybe of some of the fittings and something like that. But on the, the actual building itself, that was usually a pretty substantial depreciation. So the appeal was that it pushed you into negative territory, but you could use that to reduce your taxes elsewhere. That, that's correct. So that's one of the exemptions to this proposed schemes that new properties will be exempt. Mm. So i.e. Newly, newly constructed properties first owned by an individual. So that applies to re full residential houses um, or apartments. Um, they, they'll all be brought into that system. So it's, I understand the encouragement there is to, to generate new construction within the industry. Mm. So there'll be a real bit of a change in the direction of where that could have interesting impacts on the market, I suspect. Now, Paul brought up something that quite would have surprised some people here. And you said that if you have losses connect, connected to borrowing to buy a business, that those losses will not be able to be used if, like negative gearing is traditionally being used to reduce your tax elsewhere. Is that right? Well, that's, that's some in early indications of where the, where the proposed legislation might be heading. Mm. Um, it will be interesting to see exactly how much fine-tuning this has because I fear that there might be a lot of unintended consequences that could get washed through to that. So I think it will be interesting to see if any proposed legislation, how it might get in the future moderated through any future parliament mm. because there's a lot of businesses and it's a very common way to go about if you're buying a new business or buying um, any type of other type of asset to generate an income, but it may initially run at a loss, yep. you want to make sure mm. that there's a tax deduction there on, on there. Mm. Yeah, particularly if you are, say, a small business and you decide to buy a rival mm -hmm. in your same marketplace, it could take you a year or two to, to turn that thing into a profitable business, because, particularly if you bought it at a low price because it wasn't doing very well. That could be a, an enormous disincentive for people to, to try and grow their business by accumulation. Yeah, particularly, yes. And that's the main focus of where this will, could be a potential problem will be headed around um, individual and sole traders, 
where they would normally be deducted against that, their personal other income. So if they might buy a small franchise to do a bit of weekend work or start up a you know, food truck or you know, was popular at the, at the moment, yep. then it's those types of issues that potentially could cause um, problems down the track, I could see. Yeah. Now, David, you mentioned uh, the franking credits and potential changes mm. about the refundability in cash. Do you want to just take us through uh, that proposal? Uh, yeah, so some of those changes with the, with the franking credit refunds, um, where previously in the past you would have a situation where if your taxable income was lower or, say, very minimal, like under $20,000 if you're semi-retired or in a self-managed super fund that's uh, in pension phase, the dividends that you would receive that were franked, so had tax paid on it by the company that you've invested on, those credits would be refundable back to you because your tax rate that you would otherwise be paying is less than the credit that you're receiving from the company, and the ATO would then give you a cash refund of that. What the proposed changes is, there will no longer be that refundable nature of those franking credits, um, so they'll only be able to use, off, use to offset existing taxable income, but no more than that would give rise to a refund, so back to zero. So, so if you're the, a person in a situation... Yep. So you still get a tax offset, you just don't get to the situation mm. where the government sends you a cheque. <laughs> Correct. So, and, and for if some you're a people, that was. Earner, yep. Sorry. Yeah. Go on. Oh no. So I was saying, if you're a higher income earner, you'd be in a situation where you would still potentially see the full benefit of those mm -hmm. franking credits. So, say if you're earning a hundred thousand dollars a year and had five thousand dollars worth of dividends, well, that would reduce dollar for dollar the tax of the franking credits. But if you were, say, somebody earning twenty thousand dollars, well, you wouldn't see any benefit of yeah. those franking credits. And that's some something where people really need to understand that it is more of a hindrance and a hurtful area to people earning less money than what it is to people earning more money. Yep. Now, David, I think I know the answer to this question, but I always ask questions based on what people might be listening, what they might be asking. So if I've got a self-managed super fund and I've got myself, say, $15,000 worth of tax offset, which in the future I won't be able to get a tax refund from, but outside my super fund, I'm... I'm doing some extra work and I'm paying tax on that, on that extra work. Can I, can I use my tax offset inside my self-managed super fund to reduce my tax outside my self-managed super fund? No, unfortunately. I so they're two that. isolated areas. Okay. Yes. So no, the ATO considers them as two completely separate entities. Mm. So whilst you might have a refund in one and not in the other, yep. they're two separate things so under that situation you'd be paying more tax but if i'm a if i'm a multi-millionaire <laughs> and i'm earning a lot of money as a multi-millionaire and i have a little investment portfolio where i've got a whole lot of tax tax credits i can use those can't i yep you've no, you'll see no different to how you were working previously so and, and and that's the that's the thing that uh is a bit of an interesting one that we, where you've got to really understand your situation about mm. how it's going to impact. So for some people on higher incomes, they'll see no difference to how yep. they're currently being using their franking credit. Vote but one, people on short, lower incomes, if you're a rich person. <laughs> <laughs> well, well that, that's the perverse outcome of some of, those, yeah. of that policy, which hasn't quite made a lot of sense to me. And David, this one has a, I think they have announced a start date, 1st of July. So that means that any dividends you get this year are okay? Is that even if, even though you won't get the refund yeah, so, so until dividends, the following tax year? Yeah. Yep, just explain that. Yeah, so dividends uh, for this financial year are good. Uh, right. So when you lodge your 2019 tax return, you'll be fine. But it's dividends received from 1 July next year, so your 2020 tax return, you won't see that cash back. Which explains in, in part why 
some of these companies, as I said some time ago, Peter, that we'll see a lot more off-market share buybacks. We're going to see some special dividends. Mm-hmm. Any company around Australia at the moment looking at its dividend franking account and thinking, yep, well, Bill's looking pretty odds on here. If they all want to look after their shareholders, they should be thinking about doing something before the 30th yeah, of June. So yeah. uh, we could, And we could also have uh, quite a few dividends brought forward. I wouldn't surprise me to see companies that might normally have paid their dividend in July. Yeah, good point. Bring it forward to June. So it should, yeah. could be an interesting year for, uh, for dividends. Yeah. Uh, well, i got another one for you, mate. And so I guess the, the, the important question is Christmas is looming. And a lot of bosses would like to give their employees a, a real good time for Christmas. And, and the tax office is actually quite compassionate uh, towards business when it comes to fringe benefit tax and spending on employees in the festive period. So why don't you explain to us what we can spend without actually bringing a fringe benefit tax upon our poor little heads as employers? Not a problem. So just a a, a recap on fringe benefits. It's a 47% tax on the private use or the benefit you give to an employee. So normally it would apply to things like motor vehicles, you pay for uh, loans, car expenses, things like that. So the ATO has has some special rules regarding Christmas parties um, where they allow up to $300 per person under what they call the minor benefits rule. Where you can spend Mine that money. Benefits, 300 bucks incur. per employee, David. That sounds like a terrific gig. Well, it is. It is not a bad little deal. So, yeah. luckily, surprisingly, it's been in there for a while. So they haven't changed up the limit for quite a while. But it's still for most businesses. 300 yeah. is more than enough yeah. to have a decent party per person. So that benefit there is allows you to spend that per person per head. Um, and what you will is you won't incur that 47% um, tax. On, on that expense. Mm. Keep in mind, though, most of the time you still can't claim a tax deduction on the actual Christmas party expense, but you won't get whacked with that additional fringe benefits tax. Mm. Um, so typically, though, keep in um, check with the ATO. It has to be provided, that Christmas party, just to the actual per- to the worker. If you start having um, friends and family come along to the party as well, then you are potentially running some fringe benefits tax issues. Um, and also consideration of where the actual party's been held. Is it being held on work premises or off work premises? Um, there are still some changes exactly how that might work there. But in typical, if you're holding your Christmas party off-site at a local restaurant, your $300 per person minor benefit rule will be suffice. You'll avoid um, fringe benefits tax. Um, you can't claim a tax deduction, but at least it's a, a little bit of a saving than what otherwise would have happened. Mm. So if, um, if your employer's well, a Grinch yep. and buying, buying the cheap wine and the cheap uh, whatever it is, you know, you, you can tell him or her to... to uh, <laughs> they can afford a bit yeah. more. Is, is that the moral of the story? They can afford without, without... Yes. Yes, without uh, wearing the, the, the ire of the ATO, you can get up to 300, that 300 bucks. Also, separate to that $300 minor benefits limit for the Christmas party that same limit can also be used again when you're consideration for Christmas gifts to your staff. Um, it just depends on exactly what the purpose, what type of gift you're giving. If it falls under the category of what the ATO is called entertainment, so things like movie tickets, sporting tickets, that type of general entertainment items, they will attract fringe benefits tax. But if you're just giving a more generic item, say like a, a gift card to like a, a Coles supermarket or something like that, then that would be exempt from fringe benefits tax as well, up to that $300 limit. So it's like if you give them a hamper, is a hamper 
going to yep. be yeah so it's okay it's just yeah so hamper would fall under hamper would be okay mm. um you can, there again can't claim a tax deduction on it mm. but no fringe benefits tax so now, my last yeah. question to you dave is i reckon a lot of small business people do claim it as a as a tax deduction and, yeah. and they don't know that they're making a mistake it's a very, very common one that we pick up most years when we yeah. come time to do our end-of-year reconciliations. Yeah. Uh, so the ATO does have some rules around it. So if they're not quite sure and you have gone over the limit, they do allow a, a rule where it's called the 50-50 split method. So where if you have a lot of um, ongoing entertainment expense during the year as separate from your Christmas expense, um, you, the ATO does allow just a straight down the line middle 50-50. 50% don't claim a tax deduction but no fringe benefits, 50% get to claim a tax deduction, but you then get whacked with the tax of 47%. It does work out slightly more expensive, but it is a way around it uh, that the ATO does accept in those situations. So potentially, David, if you're feeling um, as a very generous employer, you could buy your staff a, a Coles or Bunnings gift card or something for what, $299 or something, and uh, uh, you wouldn't pay FBT and it wouldn't be... You, you wouldn't get a deduction, but it wouldn't be taxed on their hands either, would it? So um, that's correct, that's a and, bit of a and that's actually, you bring up a yeah. you bring up a good point there about the three hundred. It is actually on three hundred dollars, so two ninety nine. You are very much correct there. Mm. Uh, so if you you've got to make sure it's below three hundred is the oh. limit. So Ooh. make sure two hundred ninety nine dollars and cents. <laughs> yes, that is okay, but yeah. three hundred would bring you on the limit. So. Okay. So that's uh, one just to consider when you're also, if it's particularly with the gift side of things, yeah. um, if it's going down the gift card path. David, thanks for making Christmas that, that much more economical than it usually is. No problem. I always love to bring the uh, bit of Christmas cheer from the tax office. <laughs> okay. All right, buddy. Thanks for joining us. That's David Giles from MoneyWise. Um, coming up after the break, we're going to answer some questions, Paul, and then we're going to be talking to John Guzik, the CEO of Webjet. And now... A word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. And we always say, Paul, don't we, that our 3.89% is both headline and comparison rates because you're supposed to tell people what your comparison rate is so they know there's, if there's any extra fees. We don't have those extra fees in there, but we won't blow our trumpet about that, Paul, will we? We'll just move on, Peter. Yeah, just, just follow ASIC guidelines and be honest. Honest. In finance, you, you, we, we, you expect that in finance anyway, don't you, Paul? Let, let's answer some questions. I've been a little bit facetious here, I know that. Some questions we've got. This one comes in from Stephen McDonald. I'm considering investing in either Westpac Capital Note 6 or Commonwealth Bank Pearls. Which do you consider would deliver the best returns over the five-year investment period? Look, I'm a little worried about this question, to be honest, Peter, because uh, these are both hybrid securities. So he's talking about the Westpac Capital Note 6 and mm. the Commonwealth Bank Pearls 11. They both both pay the same uh, nominal return of the bank bill rate plus 3.7%. And then, of course, that whole amount, you get 70% of that because it's ranked. Yep. Um, but 
if all things go well, if you put $100 in these things, you'll end up with exactly $100 back. Yeah, so they, they give you capital back and you get to earn that money yeah, along the way, so provided nothing goes wrong. That's right. So the question is, which is going to give you the best returns? Mm. Well, if, if, if both instruments work properly, they should give you exactly the same return. Good point. So that's why I'm sort of what was wor- a bit worried about the question. So I think uh, often gets uh, people get a little bit confused with some of these securities is they are they are like a debt instrument in the sense that you put $100 in, you hope to get $100 back when they mature. But of course, the capital nature is not that you can make more than $100, but you can lose some of your $100 because if something goes really wrong, you mm. won't get $100 back, you'll get a lot less back. So mm. if the bank gets into uh, financial difficulty and banks sometimes in Australia, it's happened, do yeah. go. We've had a few mm. banks get, get challenged. These things will be worth like about 10 or $15, mm. not $100. Mm. So the, as far as risk goes, the risk is it's all one way, but because you assign a very low expectation that's going to happen, that's why you're getting a pretty predictable return. Yeah, so no, I, think, I think what Steve would love to know is, are you investing in either one of those? Well, I think both are a little expensive. Commonwealth Bank uh, is probably a little better, A, because it's a little shorter, mm-hmm. and so you have your money out. Shorter time. Shorter mm-hmm. time. And B, just tends to trade a bit more of a premium. There's, it's still the number one bank. It's mm-hmm. bigger than Westpac, and it's... Uh, has a stronger credit rating, or okay. s- sorry, marginally stronger. At least in the eyes of the rating. market, people probably think so, you're more secure with CBA than West I would, Bank. I would, if I had to choose, I'd probably invest in Commonwealth Bank. But I actually think the rate's a bit low, but the market seems to like it. So um, okay. I said, interesting, we were talking about franking again, because of course, you know, what Stephen shouldn't forget, of course, is that these returns are franked. And, uh, you know, if... if, if uh, Shorten or Mr. Shorten gets elected as Prime Minister and that policy goes ahead as it's, as, as it's suggested. A lot of people who buy pearls and hybrids, for example, a lot of the self-managed super funds in pension phase, they won't be particularly attractive investments anymore. So mm. these carry some risk in the sense of I put in the you know the electoral cycle risk, and that's why I'm not sure the rate's high enough. So you're saying if I'm a retiree and I've gone long hybrids, bills... Franking credit um, strategy will reduce the the yep. return. Yeah, if if it's in, held in your in your pension fund, yeah, absolutely. So that's the thing to okay. think. The market really hasn't, I don't Got think, priced that. as yep. much of that into this. So okay. that's why I'm sort of uh, wavering on the point. But if I had a choice, I'd probably buy Commonwealth Bank. Okay, uh, this one comes from uh, I can't see a name on this one. Katrina, Katarina. Um, could I please ask the following questions? If I were to purchase an index fund for the Australian share market, what would you recommend? This is for a self-managed super fund. Would it be better for one with an income component? It's the first part of the question. Same question for the US market, she says. And what do you think of ETFs for technology stocks in the US? Okay, so it's a good question, good uh, questions. Uh, Katarina. Let's deal with the local market. There are two um, big ETFs that track the S&P ASX 200, one from iShares and the other one from uh, uh, State Street, Street, which is uh, code STW. There's also one from Vanguard, which is code VAS, which tracks the S&P ASX 300. If I was looking for a straight ETF, pure index, I'd probably go for VAS, that's VAS over um, I. OS, OS. And STM. 
and S tier. S tier, but there's really not much to choose from. Probably more because it tracks a 300 index versus a 200 index. That's a bit cheaper too, isn't it? Uh, they're pretty much all down below 20 basis points. Okay. Uh, so they've, 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 there's, I don't think there's a huge difference down in price anymore. Mm. Um, however, another alternative is you could look at funds like uh, STWZ, Switz. SWTZ. SWTZ. You got it wrong. I yeah. did. Yeah. Which is not an index fund, but we should give our fund, Switzer Dividend Growth Fund, should give roughly, you know, market-based performance. Hmm. But it obviously has a bias towards income, and so it should give you a higher dividend yield. So there are some the index funds that you've been that I've been talking about will give you whatever the market's doing. Yeah, they won't do any more because that's they're they're on autopilot. And and, and, and they've kind they've kind of historically returned a little under five percent, haven't they? Probably a little bit less than that, Peter. Close to four. It's, a bit, a little bit more than four, yeah. and the franking is going to be about seventy-five yeah. percent. So, uh, look, the index funds are great for a purpose. They're the ones I'd look at. Yeah. There's very little between them. And when we when we created Switz, we did it to try and do better than yeah. four or yeah. four point two, yeah. but we won't, we won't get as much capital gain. We shouldn't. I mean, yeah. we we might we do okay, can't we? But yeah. maybe not do as well as the market because we've gone for a bias towards dividend stocks. Yeah. yeah, and 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 there's a view here as well, Peter, that over the longer term, maybe not the very short term, they'll do better longer term. So mm. there's a there's a bit of that to come back to yeah. help as well. I, quite frankly, I mix yeah. both. I've got yeah. I've got both an ETF. I think I've got uh, STM and IOZ because I uh, mix them up. But um, I, I, I switch as well. Yep, let's move on to the U.S. market. Look, I'd probably do IVV. Now, income is not going to be as important in the U.S. market simply mm. because you don't get a lot of income out of U.S. shares. Yeah. Uh, an IVV it, is an iShares yep, ETF that's an iShares. That for the U.S. market. That tracks the S&P 500, which yep. is not the biggest index, but certainly it's a fairly broad and index. And probably a good time to buy now, yep. given the fact that it's been, been crushed lately. And again, expectations around income. Again, if investing overseas, Australia has high shares that pay high levels of income in the US, whereas our average dividend yield, as we were talking about, is in the fours. In the US, it's about two. So investing overseas for income through the share market is probably not the right. I don't think that's an expectation you should have. Yep. That's not what the markets do. Yep. Um, and then thirdly, look, ETF for technology stocks. Uh, I think the right opportunity, that, that'll come back at some stage. I'm not sure that it's just there at the moment. Mm. Um, I mean, these stocks uh, have gone up, even with the correction we've seen in Apple. Something uh, it's, 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 it's still up. Most of those stocks are still up this yeah. year by a long way still. So I'd say, Katarina, a small exposure would be an interesting investment, mm -hmm. but don't go, don't go mad on it. Quite frankly, that's yep. my, my, my best guess. Okay, Paul, finally, a question from Scott about Clydesdale Bank. Uh, he says, he's, he's, um, is it still a hold today? Uh, it's had a bit of a, a mixed run, but the outlook's not that bad. Brexit's got in the yeah, way Yeah, Brexit's got in the way a bit. I mean, Clydesdale Bank's one of those funny stocks that, uh, look, uh, I think has a great long-term potential if it can get its technology right. But, you know, again... Um, they've bought off Virgin Money. Probably yeah. that hasn't gone so well, more than they can chew because mm -hmm. they've, they've paid a lot. And then we've had Brexit. We've had some other issues around credit, you know, the more things coming out of misconduct that uh, have caused some issues. So, uh, look, I'm not sure. I hold Clydesdale Bank simply because I think it's cheap and I can't be bothered selling it. 
would I put a lot of money when when NAB gave it to you? Yeah, yeah, and I still think it's cheap and it's worth worth a hold on to. Have I ever felt as a stock I want to go and put a lot of money into? No, because simply because it's sort of like it's in a very narrow part. If you know the UK, this is this business is based around Yorkshire and Scotland. They're not the best in terms of uh, you know growth areas in the yeah. UK. It's kind um, of like regional, like the Newcastle. It's, it's not right. permanent. It's, yeah. a bit, it's a bit like a good area, but not big area. Yeah, I mean they've been. It's absolutely right. You're, mm. you're spot on, Peter. Mm. And um, I don't know whether um, I think it's okay. But look, I think the Virgin Money thing will work out okay. But I think it might have uh, used up a few, made a burnt a few friends in uh, in putting that together. So mm. okay, so it's time for an ad break, Paul. Uh, we'll be back to you, back to you, the show in a moment, and we'll. Um, Talking to the CEO of Webjet, John Guzik. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are my teeth? So joining me on the program now is the... Well, I always have difficulties with this, John. Is it CEO... Or MD, or CEO and MD of Webjet. I'm just the MD, Peter. <laughs> just the MD. Well, his name is John Gusick, by the way. He's actually done pretty well since he's been at uh, Webjet. And <laughs> I'm not going to ask you why you're not CEO. <laughs> Was it? He didn't think you're executive class, just more managing director. <laughs> he doesn't wear ties yeah, either. Just, you don't wear ties, do you? CEO does. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> That's the reason why they wouldn't make him a chief executive. I've seen him in airport lounges, you know, looking like a, a swanning around layabout. But geez, I'm well in business. Well, I think you found the perfect Christmas present for you, John. <laughs> and Ty, is that right? <laughs> yeah, it'll be parked with all the other ties that I don't use. So, but thanks for the thought. <laughs> okay, mate. So, um, why don't you explain to our listeners? why Webjets continue to do well despite the fact that big airlines have made it really hard for businesses like yours that sell airline tickets? Oh, it's not a, uh, it's not a diff- difficult proposition. Most consumers like choice, and most consumers, when they're given choice, like it to be in a convenient format that enables them to, uh, to book what they want, where they want it uh, at the right time. So... The best example I can give you about why we continue to grow faster than the market is that in our domestic uh, search results, when you get onto webjet.com.au, you click through for Melbourne, Sydney, you've got um, all the airline types at the top and you've got every available uh, departure time for the day. And what we find our consumers are doing is that... uh, they're choosing one airline on the way up and one airline on the way back. They're doing what maximizes the value and the convenience for themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's one simple example why uh, we're doing better than the, uh, the market. And we've been growing at least three times the rate of the market for the last four or five years. And 
we expect that to continue. But John, your business also is uh, you've got now sort of a, a pretty large business to business type uh, activity as well, haven't you? Yeah, we've got uh, we've got two divisions. We we have a consumer facing division of which Webjet I just spoke about. We have another one based out of New Zealand called Online Republic, which sells uh, primarily motorhomes, cars, and uh, cruises. And then we have a B2B business, uh, which is the wholesaling of hotel rooms. And we've been very active in that uh, arena, so much so that um, on a pro forma basis for FY18, based on the acquisition we just made two weeks ago with Destinations of the World, um, our B2B business at at a sales level, at a TTV level, will be greater than our consumer-facing business. So it just goes to show that uh, Australian businesses can be successful outside their home market and they can be successful if they uh, they choose an environment in which we've got a competitive advantage and we've mm. been able to build out a competitive advantage in our provisioning of hotel rooms for the trade. So the, the hotel room business, um, are, are there any brand names that people would know despite the fact that they are a business-to-business brand? Unfortunately, no, there is no uh, brand names that they would know. Mm. But uh, I'll put it into context for you. It's in Aussie dollars, it's a $75 billion market that we're going after. Mm. We are now the number two player in the world, and we're only delivering $2 billion in sales in that environment. So, mm. with 3% market share, we're the number two player. So, it's massively fragmented, mm. and we believe that. Yeah, we're the fastest growing player in the world. So we believe as the fastest growing number two player, we're in a sweet spot. We can continue to grow and our objectives on our B2B business are even more adventurous than on our B2C business, which is we expect that business to grow at least five times the rate of the market growth. And and I I suppose what you're saying is that there there are just... The travel agents that specialise in looking after business customers are prime targets for you guys. Correct. We, we have five big customer groups that we're targeting, and one of them is what you just mentioned, the, uh, the, beta, the corporate travel agency businesses, and we have um, a specific um, solution for those guys. We also sell to retail travel agents. We sell to other online travel agents, and we sell to wholesalers in the market, and we sell to tour operators. So, as I said, it's a big pie. There's five segments and it generates 75 bill in sales. So we think that there's an enormous runway ahead of us of uh, growth for that particular business. And, and John, that business has been, you've got into that and made a number of acquisitions, including the latest one that's uh, uh, Destinations uh, of the World. Yep. And so just yep. ex- just explain so, the number of acquis- the acquisitions you've made and uh, how you're putting those uh, companies together. Sure. So I'll give you the history of the business because it's gone from zero to two billion in sales in five years. So we launched the business in February of 2013 and we sold $13,000 worth of hotel rooms. (laughs) And we're now selling uh, an annualized two billion in that business. So what we did organically, we started up the business in the Middle East. I hired a uh, a group of guys who were, in my opinion, the, the best management team in this particular sector. And they have clearly proven that with the stellar growth that they had in the Middle East 
that business we then organically grew into uh, the Americas and we organically grew our business into Asia. Along the way, as you mentioned, Paul, we've made three acquisitions. So in mid-2014, we bought a, um, a smaller wholesaler, primarily selling uh, the Mediterranean beach product to Scandinavians called Sun Hotels. Um, that was around a $30 million uh, transaction. Then middle of last year, as we started being successful and growing our business in all of these geographic uh, territories, we realized that we could achieve uh, even greater results if we built out more scale in each of those territories. So we made an acquisition of a business called Jack Travel, in which we paid around about 200 million pounds for that business. So at the time, about 340 million Aussie. And this year in November, we made the acquisition of Destinations of the World for uh, 240 million Australians. So we've made three acquisitions along the way, and that accounts for approximately uh, just over half of the sales that we've made, and the rest has been organic as we've grown that business in all the territories that we now compete. So, John, so I've worked out why you don't wear a tie, and it's because you've had so many nervous moments outlaying those large amounts of money on, on businesses that have come. You, you, you'd be just choking under the pressure. Not quite. I'm, uh, <laughs> quite, I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite optimistic and quite happy to, uh, to continue to take up my entitlements for, for each of those share offers and, uh, and if possible, to expand my, uh, my holding in Webjet. I can't think of a better investment, Peter. No, exactly right. I must admit, when I asked that, that repeated question about a tie, it reminded me of an interview that Rowan Atkinson did where he, he actually was pestering someone about not wearing a tie. So I, I apologise if you think I'm channelling Rowan Atkinson in any shape or form. This is a serious interview, John. If you were channelling Rowan Atkinson, you'd have taken a step up in my estimation, Peter. <laughs> You're so nasty. Now, John, so the future. <laughs> what's what's the future yes. for Webjet? As I say, I've I've always I've stuck my reputation on the line by you know actually portraying you as a, as a reasonably good leader of a, of a pretty good business, and you've kept on you've kept on delivering. But what's the future, mate? Uh, well, firstly, I appreciate your support. When we were a very small. Uh, Business based in Australia, you're kind enough to uh, to uh, give me some exposure nationwide. I'm always grateful for that, yeah. and uh, I think our business is uh, going to continue what it's doing. We we believe that in the Australian market, we've still got great growth in our OTA business, our online travel agency business. We think that uh, we can continue to exceed the market growth there. Our B2B business, we've just scratched the surface and we believe, again, that there are enormous opportunities as that fragmented market um, gets professionalised and we want to be uh, part of the driver, driving force in that professionalisation of the wholesale market. So we're pretty confident that for the next five years there's enough targets for us to pursue and enough initiatives undertaken with the assets that we currently own to, to drive a a great outcome for the business. Oh, one last question. <clears throat> Are you recession-proof? Uh, well, I'll say historically, the travel industry has been recession-proof. Uh, the, 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 the only blip in the last 20 years was a six-month period 
during the GFC. Mm. And in, in aggregate terms, this is a global phenomenon, travel has outstripped uh, GDP growth by at least 50%. And Australia, that's been the case. It's been the case the last... Uh, let's, let's take the, the last 10 years in Australia. International outbound growth has been at least double the rate of underlying GDP. Mm. So... Uh, Travel is aspirational. Mm. Middle-class people would love travelling. More people fall into the middle-class bucket on a global basis, the better it is for our industry. So historically, yes, we have been uh, recession-proof. Yeah, and I guess what that's what China's doing is middle-classing mm. its population, isn't it? Mate, thanks for joining us on the program. Uh, we wish you lots of luck. And, you know, don't, don't ruin my reputation <laughs> by having a bad year, all right? <laughs> it won't be this year, Peter. Okay, good. We'll go. We'll go short. You. We'll go long. You short. All right, mate. Thanks for coming to the program. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, Peter. That's Cheers. John Guzik, who is the Cheers, is the MD of Webjet, uh, and that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll get back to you this time next week. Mm-hmm.